From New York, this is Democracy Now! Big Pharma charging Americans more than three times what they charge other countries simply because they could. And I think it's outrageous. Despite lawsuits from Big Pharma, the Biden administration has announced Medicare will begin negotiating to bring down the costs of 10 prescription drugs, including ones used to treat diabetes, cancer and heart disease. We'll get the latest on the landmark announcement. Plus, we go to the Dominican Republic to look at the dire living conditions for Haitian migrant workers on sugar plantations. The state realized that the cheap labor of Haitian seasonal workers was beneficial to the Dominican economy. This culminated in the construction of Batayes, towns of sugar plantation workers. These plantations have exploited these cheap laborers and forced Haitian seasonal workers into a modern form of slavery. We speak to Democratic Congressmember Greg Kassar just back from a congressional trip to Colombia, Brazil, and Chile, which will soon mark 50 years since the U.S. backed military coup. Kassar and the other lawmakers are calling on the Biden administration to declassify more documents about the U.S. role in the coup. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Soldiers in Gabon declare they're seizing power and nullifying recent elections as they took to national television earlier today. The general elections of August 26, 2023, as well as the truncated results, are canceled. The borders are closed until further notice. All institutions of the republic are dissolved. Earlier in the day, Gabon's National Election Authority announced President Ali Bango Ondimba has been re-elected for a third term in Saturday's election, which was marred by delays and decried by opposition leader Albert Ando Osa as a fraud. Bongo, who's reportedly being held under house arrest, has already served two seven-year terms. His family has been in power for over half a century. Critics accuse Bongo of not using the West African nation's oil and natural resource wealth to improve the lives of one-third of the population living in poverty. The French oil giant Total Energies is Gabon's main distributor of petroleum products. Gabon freed itself from French rule in 1960. As soldiers drove through the capital, Libre, residents took to the streets to cheer them on. If successful, it would be the eighth coup in West Africa and Central Africa since 2020. Hurricane Idalia made landfall along the Big Bend area of Florida's Gulf Coast as a Category 3 storm with winds of 125 miles per hour. It's likely to be the most powerful hurricane to affect Florida's capital, Tallahassee, in decades. More than 100,000 customers have lost power when Idalia hit Florida's coast. 30 of the state's 67 counties were issued at least partial evacuation orders as of early this morning, as officials warned residents of catastrophic storm surges of up to 12 to 16 feet. Very few people can survive being in the path of major storm surge, and this storm will be deadly if we don't get out of harm's way and take it seriously. No, I'm not. 
The Biden administration released a list of the first 10 prescription drugs Medicare will now be able to negotiate prices on, which could lead to a savings of some $100 billion over the next decade. The price negotiation was established as part of 2022's Inflation Reduction Act and is a massive blow for Big Pharma, which has been fighting the plan in courts in at least eight lawsuits. The drugs are used to treat diabetes, cancer and heart disease, among other conditions. The White House said senior citizens paid $3.4 billion in out-of-pocket costs for the 10 medications in the past year. This is President Biden. For years, Big Pharma blocked us. They kept prescription drug prices high to increase their profits to extend patents on existing drugs to suppress fair competition instead of innovating, playing games and pricing so they could charge whatever they can. But this is finally, 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 we had enough votes by matter one to beat Big Pharma. The negotiated prices will not take effect until 2026. Some drugs will remain exempted from further negotiations, including those which were approved by the FDA less than nine years ago. In Uganda, two men are facing what are believed to be the first charges of aggravated homosexuality after a draconian new anti-LGBTQIA law was passed earlier this year, which also punishes consensual same-sex relations. The charges could lead to life in prison and even the death penalty. The law has been widely condemned by rights groups, the U.N. and other countries. Earlier this month, the World Bank said it's suspending new loans to Uganda over the law. Meanwhile, in Nigeria, over five dozen people were arrested at a gay wedding in the south of the country Monday. Same-sex marriage is illegal in Nigeria, punishable by up to 14 years behind bars. More than 30 African nations ban same-sex relationships. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Army officials are reporting at least 14 people are dead after militia fighters attacked a village in the northeastern part of the country. Military officials have blamed the Kodeko militia for the attack. More than 120 armed groups have been in bloody conflict in the region, many over control of land and mines, while others are fighting to protect their communities. The Danish government's proposed a new bill that would ban the burning of the Quran under penalty of fines or up to two years in prison. This comes after recent public desecrations of the Quran by far-right protesters in Denmark and Sweden, setting off international condemnation and demonstrations across the Muslim world. This is Denmark's justice minister. When individuals demonstratively go out and burn the Quran daily, as we have seen recently, it's a basic mockery and unsympathetic action. It harms Denmark in Danish interests, and it risks the security of Danes out in the world and at home. In Bahrain, at least 800 prisoners have been on hunger strike for over three weeks, protesting human rights violations and worsening conditions. Prisoners have denounced arbitrary solitary confinement, cell lockdowns of 23 hours a day, and no access to medical care and education. This is the biggest hunger strike led by political prisoners in the Gulf nation's history, with hundreds of others also taking to the streets in solidarity with the strikers at the Jao prison, the largest in Bahrain. Officials have reportedly agreed to increase the duration of visitations 
Simmons and said they're looking into raising the time prisoners are allowed outdoors. Many of them were arrested, tortured and imprisoned following the 2011 massive uprisings during the Arab Spring. In Pakistan, an appeals court Tuesday suspended former Prime Minister Imran Khan's three-year prison sentence and conviction on corruption charges. If the court decides to set aside his conviction, he'll be allowed to run for office and elections scheduled for November. But despite being granted bail, Khan will remain in detention, at least for now, over another criminal case involving the leak of classified information. Dozens of charges were brought against Khan since he was removed from office in a no-confidence vote in April last Last year, Khan has denounced the charges as politically motivated. Amidst mounting U.S.-China tensions, lawmakers in 33 states have introduced legislation this year to prohibit Chinese entities and even Chinese citizens from buying agricultural land or property near military bases. A dozen of those bills have passed into law, including Florida's controversial SB 264, which has been challenged by a group of Chinese citizens who cited violations of the Fair Housing Act. The Washington Post reports, while most of the legislation making its way through state houses also names countries like Iran and North Korea, China is the clear target. Rights groups and some political leaders say such restrictions will further stoke anti-Asian sentiment. Uh, quote, there is ignorance out there that causes people to think that because you're Chinese, you're part of the Chinese government, said former Texas State Representative Martha Wong to The Washington Post. A new report finds air pollution reduces global life expectancy by 2.3 years, slightly more than being a smoker. The study by the Energy Policy Institute at University of Chicago concludes fine particulate air pollution from vehicles, industrial emissions, wildfires and other sources are, quote, the greatest external threat to public health, unquote. In South Asia, air pollution cuts life expectancy by an average of five years, with the air quality in New Delhi, India, leading to a loss of life of more than 10 years on average. In Greece, firefighters are battling a massive wildfire in the northeast Evros region for the 12th straight day. The blazes destroyed an area greater than New York City in what has become the largest ever recorded wildfire in the European Union. Greek officials said the fire was still out of control around the Dadja National Park. This is the head of conservation at WWF Greece. Because of its very high biodiversity, the National Park of Dadia was one of the most important protected areas in Greece and also in Europe, perhaps also in international scale. And at the moment, at least 30 percent of the park has been lost to fire. Here in the United States, wildfires in southwestern Louisiana killed two people and scorched roughly 60,000 acres as of Tuesday. Governor John Bell Edwards said the fires are the worst Louisiana has experienced since at least the Second World War amidst a record-breaking drought. Meanwhile, in Maui, the search for wildfire victims on land has ended, with search efforts now moving to the ocean. The official death toll has reached 115 people with many still missing. 
The Environmental Protection Agency has rolled back parts of the Clean Water Act, which protect millions of acres of wetlands, in order to comply with a Supreme Court ruling. The right-wing-dominated court ruled in May that wetlands must have a continuous surface connection to streams, oceans, rivers and lakes to be subject to federal regulations on pollution. Up to 63 percent of wetlands will be affected. The White House said the Supreme Court ruling, quote, jeopardizes the sources of clean drinking water for farmers, business and millions of Americans. And the Committee on the Rights of the Child said Monday governments must address the climate crisis and other environmental emergencies to, quote, ensure that children are protected from foreseeable, premature or unnatural death and threats to their lives and enjoy their right to life with dignity. The formal opinion issued by the U.N. body could be a boon to multiple lawsuits brought by youth around the world over their government's inaction and contribution to climate change. Next month, the European Court of Human Rights will hear a climate case from a group of young people in Portugal against 32 countries. To see our interview with a youth activist in Montana after the Montana case was won in a lawsuit brought by Montana Youth, go to democracynow.org. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, the Biden administration's taken a step to rein in the soaring costs of prescription drugs in the United States. On Tuesday, the White House released a list of the first 10 prescription drugs Medicare can negotiate lower prices for. The list includes medication used to treat diabetes, cancer and heart disease. The Biden administration also added some insulin products, which surprised many. The White House says the price negotiations could lead to a savings of some $100 billion over the next decade. The move is seen as a major blow to Big Pharma, which has been fighting the plan in courts, filing at least eight lawsuits since the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act last year, which gave Medicare the authority to negotiate drug prices. President Biden spoke Tuesday. Big Pharma is charging Americans more than three times what they charge other countries simply because they could. And I think it's outrageous. That's why these negotiations matter. Reducing the cost of these 10 additional drugs alone will help more than 9 million Americans. And by September 2024, HHS, Health and Human Services, was going to publish the prices it negotiated. In January of 2026, the new prices will go into effect. Independent Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont responded to the news by saying much more needs to be done to stop Big Pharma from charging higher prices in the United States. Senator Sanders pointed out one diabetes drug made by Merck costs $547 a month in the U.S., but just $16 in France. Joining us now is Peter Maybarduk. He's director of Public Citizens Access to Medicines program. Welcome to Democracy Now! So talk about why this has taken so long, but also why this is such a landmark um, announcement from President Biden and Vice President Harris. 
Well, it's obviously terrible that Medicare hasn't had the ability to negotiate prices until this point. It was a corrupt deal when the Medicare prescription drug benefit was created nearly uh, 20 years ago, and pharma was against the reform until it was for it because it was able to write out the possibility of negotiation. And so since that time, a generation of health advocates have been working to uh, give the government the basic right to negotiate drug prices with the monopolists that uh, our laws create and support. Countries around the world uh, have that have that right, and not negotiating makes obviously our drug prices higher and our tax dollars not go as far. So this list, long expected announcement coming short after shortly after the one year anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, shows us where our governments uh, where our government will begin negotiations based on some of the most ex- the drugs that are most expensive uh, to Medicare, and we expect the savings to be quite substantial. Uh, It includes six very commonly used uh, medications to support heart health and fight diabetes. My father-in-law takes four of these drugs. They're very important to seniors. It also includes three very expensive rare disease um, drugs or drugs against arthritis and a blood cancer. Uh, But as you mentioned, the inclusion of insulin is, um, is a welcome surprise. Well, not just insulin, but six insulin products sold by Novo Nordisk, something that Insulin for All activists have been fighting for uh, for quite some time. 1.3 million Americans ration insulin, and this is another step toward breaking the back of the insulin cartel that we're very glad to see. Uh, But Peter, why so few drugs in the first batch that are going to be negotiated compared to the thousands of drugs that are out there? And also, doesn't this take a, a effect of people will only feel the impact in 2028 why so uh, long a period of time so there's a statutory mandate they have to begin with 10 drugs but they will add uh, 15 drugs in the following year and another 15 drugs in the year after that so the impact is going to grow uh, substantially over a period of time we of course would have liked to see the initial legislation be more aggressive and bring more drugs immediately into the negotiation portfolio the VA negotiates uh, on behalf of veterans already. They handle it with a with a large number of drugs. But this is the deal that was cut. Uh, but that, that impact is going to grow. Uh, the prices will take effect on January 1st of 2026, and it does take some time. There will be a negotiation. There will be an exchange of information this fall with the companies. Uh, CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, will sit down with patient groups and hear their perspective. And then there will be a negotiate an, an initial price offer from the government in February and negotiations next summer. Um, but the Inflation Reduction Act more broadly already is having positive impacts on drug prices. Beyond the negotiation uh, provisions, there are measures to curb price spikes, the Pharma Bro Martin Shkreli problem that also is a standard industry practice to increase the prices of their drugs that are already on the market year by year. In fact, AARP found that uh, for the top 25 Medicare drugs, pharma has tripled the price of those drugs since they came on market. Prices are going up, not down, after they put a drug on market. Anyhow, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, also includes and has penalized so far, CMS, I believe, has penalized about 40 companies for taking price spikes uh, and ensuring that that practice stops. So IRA is already holding prices in place for some drugs, uh, and over time we will see price reductions through the negotiation. But as Senator Sanders mentioned, there is quite a, bo- quite a bit left to do and more than needs to be done outside of IRA.
And did the Inflation Reduction Act also have a cap uh, on the uh, amount of money that uh, people could uh, would have to spend out of their own pocket for drugs taken at home? There are um, there are out of pocket caps and and coverage expansions that are that are uh, part of the act and will support seniors uh, with their drug costs. Yes. Mm-hmm. Peter Maybarduk, if you can respond to what some of the Republicans have said, I mean, this seems to me across the political spectrum uh, to be appreciated, to say the least. If But the question is, like uh, Sanders has raised, Senator Sanders, um, why it is so limited. But um, the head of the midterm elections, Congressman Kevin Brady, Republican, said repealing the law could be a Republican agenda item because those drug provisions are so dangerous by discouraging investment in life-saving cures. Um, is this discouraging investment in life-saving cures, or is it just going to stock buybacks? <laughs> Much of it's going to buybacks. No, it's not discouraging investment. And those, those, those critics are out of step with public opinion. A recent West Gallup poll showed that 83% of Americans favor some form of a drug price negotiation and this, uh, this going ahead. Look, the American people uh, support pharmaceutical research and development to the tune of $40 billion of year, uh, a year through the National Institutes of Health and its grants. Almost every single new drug that comes to market has benefited from taxpayer subsidies of their research and development agenda, and in addition uh, to the many tax breaks. And further, prices are not related to R&D costs. It's not as though the pharmaceutical companies look at their R&D costs and say, here's what it's going to take to recoup. They say, no, what is the most that we can charge? And this has come out in Senate hearings and elsewhere. What's the, what's the most we can charge before the blowback becomes unsustainable? We have to recall that these are drugs that are they're monopolized, they're patent protected, and the companies will charge in an environment without market competition as much as we collectively are willing to pay to care for our sick. Negotiation to, to pay the price that we find appropriate is sort of the least that our government uh, can do to begin to rein in those sorts of abuses. Um, if you can talk about going back to that point about, for example, Merck's diabetes drug, Genuvia, costing $547 in the U.S., but just $16 in France. Why is there this massive difference? And also, the fact that this doesn't go into effect for another, what, almost three years, uh, 2026? And are new drugs uh, subject to this? Well, I think for us, the, one of the biggest shortcomings of the negotiation provisions is that drugs aren't subject to negotiation until they've been on uh, market seven to 11 years, depending on the class of uh, drug. Now, pharmaceutical companies have been raising the price of new drugs when a drug first comes to market, an average of 20% per year for the past 15 years. So the launch price of drugs keeps getting higher. And if we don't find a way to deal with that problem, we can actually expect that while the Inflation Reduction Act will save a great deal of money, prices for new drugs will continue to go up. Now, the government does have tools to deal with that, and um, many of us, including Senator Sanders and Warren and Representative Lloyd Doggett and many of their 
progressive colleagues in, in Congress have championed executive action against the patent monopolies to say that when a drug is outrageously expensive, the government actually has the right under current existing law to authorize generic competition with those drugs at any time and save a great deal of money. And if we start to do that, then we will see the kind of downward pressure on prices. You know, it will force some restraint uh, in the boardroom and will, would very nicely complement the Inflation Reduction Act's provisions on negotiation uh, and inflationary rebates. And, and Peter, I want to ask you, Americans spend uh, in 2022 $600 billion on uh, on medicines. Uh, that's half of the total expenditure on medicines uh, in the entire globe. Uh, we watch TV and every uh, every day there are so many drugs being peddled by the pharmaceutical industry that they can't they're running out of names uh, to, to come up with names for these drugs. Uh, could you talk about this enormous marketing effort of the pharmaceutical district to push drugs on the American people? Well, it's out of control. And, you know, we, we hope through processes like IRA, we can slowly start to get toward um, more rational and transparent um, uh, processes as well, reveal more information about price, better value if, if the government implements the act, you know, quite quite assertively, better value the medical innovations that make the biggest difference to health um, rather than uh, medications that are primarily cosmetic or just do the same thing as, as the last uh, five expensive drugs. Uh, but it's true. You know, we're paying far more than the rest of the world, and there's no rational basis for it. It's also true that there's really no rational basis for the prices of patented drugs anywhere in the world. This is the problem we get when we create legal monopolies and then do very little uh, to constrain the price of those monopolies. It leads to treatment rationing in the United States, three in 10 people self-rationing their own access to medicines in the United States. And of course, it leads to tremendous preventable suffering and death uh, around the world. Where does universal health care, single-payer health care, the movement for it stand today, Peter? I mean, that's the bigger question. Um, well, the, you know, the, the two processes, we, we need both because you can have universal health care and still have drug monopolies. So while we're making important strides on universal coverage uh, here and around the world, we also need to see pers- uh, specific disciplines set on the pharmaceutical corporations because we wouldn't want them uh, ripping off a single payer either. But at least through single payer, you get those. And if you couple it with aggressive negotiation and other tools, uh, you get that increased bargaining power. Uh, pharma exploits uh, the, the relatively limited bargaining power of health systems that have many purchasers where no one knows what the other one uh, is paying. So unifying those uh, could be quite helpful and pushing for transparency of R&D costs as well as prices would help, too. Peter Maybarduk, we want to thank you so much for being with us, Director of Public Citizens Access to Medicines Program, speaking to us from Massachusetts. Coming up, Texas Democratic Congress member Greg Kassar is just back from a congressional trip to Colombia, Brazil, Chile, which will soon mark half a century since the U.S.-backed military coup. We'll speak to him as President Biden just met with the Costa Rican president at the White House. Stay with us. Since we were a child, we knew that water's running out. Since we were a child, we knew what they should do about the 
grinding down the vicious gears, the gnashing of the teeth. Disposable everything, disposable everything. Disposable Everything by AJJ. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Commemorations are being planned in Chile for September 11th to mark the 50th anniversary of the U.S.-backed military coup that ousted democratically elected President Salvador Allende and led to a 17-year dictatorship led by General Augusto Pinochet. A U.S. congressional delegation recently traveled to Chile ahead of the coup anniversary. During their trip, the lawmakers called for the Biden administration to declassify more documents on the U.S. role in the coup. Congress members taking part in the trip were New York's Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Nydia Velasquez, Florida's Maxwell Frost, who we spoke to yesterday, and Joaquin Castro and Greg Kassar, both from Texas. The delegation also traveled to Brazil and Colombia. Texas Congress member Greg Kassar joins us now from Austin, Texas. Um, we're also speaking to you on the day after President Biden met with the Costa Rican president at the White House to talk about issues, including migration. But we want to start uh, where you were in Latin America and particularly talk about what's happening in Chile right now, just ahead of that other September 11th, September 11th, 1973, when the U.S.-backed Augusto Pinochet rose to power and the uh, democratically elected president, Salvador Allende, died in the palace. Amy Juan, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, just got back from this trip uh, to Colombia, Brazil and Chile, and it was an important and historic trip. It was the First time that anyone can remember that an entirely Latino delegation of members of Congress went down. Many of the heads of state and ministers that we met with uh, were surprised, first of all, to have almost the, the meetings almost virtually entirely in Spanish and in Brazil in Portuñol, which is kind of what folks call a mix of Portuguese and Spanish, like we call Spanglish here uh, when there's Spanish speakers and English speakers in the room. But most importantly, uh, I think an entirely progressive delegation that want to replace our old relationship with Latin America that was based on Cold War militarism and military interventionism and supporting coups um, and corporate extraction, to replace that old relationship with something new based on mutual respect and supporting democracy, based on uh, admitting to the errors of our past, many of which have been horrible, um, and trying to uh, kind of build a new path based on mutual survival of the climate crisis and lifting up workers in all places and addressing the root causes of migration. And so they were powerful visits at each place, especially in Chile, given the, given the 50th anniversary coming up of the U.S.-backed coup um, and the support for Pinochet, who disappeared and killed so many people. 
And uh, Congressman, congratulations on the trip. Uh, I'm wondering in terms of the choice of countries, especially when it comes to transnational migration, Venezuela has become the main source now in South America of migrants to the United States. Uh, was there a reason why you didn't choose to go to Venezuela as well? We did meet with many of the top leaders um, in uh, Colombia and our attache in Colombia handles the issues in Venezuela. And the reason we visited these three countries in particular is because they had each elected um, new progressive uh, and left leaders, um, uh, left leaders of tri trying to defend and build their democracies to start to build that kind of, of relationship. And so we went to those three, but we spoke about the issues impacting Venezuela in each and every one um, of those countries, because, for example, Colombia um, has housed millions of the Venezuelans who have been uh, displaced in significant part due to uh, U.S. policy in Venezuela. And so in each of those countries, we talked about how U.S. sanctions in Venezuela uh, are one of the contributing factors to what is pushing people out into those countries in South America and then many of them um, to risk their lives in the Darien Gap and then to arrive in the United States. And if we want to address, uh, as you've written about so extensively, Juan, the root causes of migration, the harvest of our empire, then we need to talk about how we're going to provide stability and hope uh, and food to people in Latin America rather than toppling governments uh, and rather than uh, starving everyday people. You know, there's this myth that our sanctions are only targeted um, at, uh, at certain leaders, at certain elites, but in fact, it's proven that uh, so many of our sanctions are ultimately starving people in their home countries and causing forced migration. We should have a system of legal migration where people who want to seek opportunity have the opportunity uh, in a safe and orderly way to migrate to the United States. But we know so many people are being pushed out of their homes that never wanted to leave in the first place. And, and how, how do you hope that uh, the Biden administration will change its, its policy uh, in the region? What were you hearing from some of the leaders in those countries about what they would hope the United States would do, especially now we're in the, the 200th anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine? Yeah, I think Chile is a perfect example of this. Uh, Fifty years ago, the United States supported a coup of democratically elected leader, uh, President Salvador Allende, in Chile. And uh, the coup led to 17 years of dictatorship under Pinochet. Uh, and many of those documents about how the United States supported this coup and then supported the dictatorship afterwards uh, remain classified. And we went uh, to the Museum of Memory in Santiago, Chile, to call on all of these documents to be declassified. And here just a few days ago, uh, the Biden administration declassified some of those documents. And the question is, why is that so important? And in talking with everyday people in Chile, movement leaders in Chile and elected officials, for them, the day of that coup um, is probably the most important marker in their history that pretty much anybody can remember. Just in the way we talk about where were you the day that JFK was assassinated or in my generation, where were you on September 11th, uh, 2001? Uh, for them, it really is what happened that day of that coup when so many people were exiled, so many people killed, and many of those bodies from that historical event still not found. And so beginning to, to stand in Chile and say that we have done enormous wrong and contributed to that wrong, and we want to establish a new relationship, we want 
full transparency for what happened. We want to provide documents that can help family members find the bodies of their lost family members who, quote unquote, were disappeared, but we knew were killed as an important start. So that then instead we could start having a new relationship based on how do we lift workers up in the clean energy economy? Chile has some of the greatest lithium reserves in the world. How do we protect indigenous communities there while making sure Chile's workers can be unionized and can have a decent wage, providing lithium to a new clean energy battery economy in places like the United States, where we are now trying to onshore manufacturing and make sure we create union jobs. So how do we lift up workers, reduce forced migration, and survive the climate crisis together? That's, I think, the relationship we want to have. But you can't just move on when you have uh, supported, for example, a military dictatorship and a coup. We need to reconcile for the past, try to heal, and then work together to survive the climate crisis that will impact all of us. And when it comes to Cuba, though, you didn't visit Cuba. Are you calling for the lifting of sanctions against Cuba that has gone on for some, what, 60 years, 50 years? Yes, we did visit. Um, we did visit about sanctions in both Cuba and in Venezuela. Uh, again, we went and met with many of the new young movement leaders uh, who are in their 30s, just like me. Uh, from a new progressive movement of, of people who care both about defending democracy uh, and supporting working people. And we know that there has been uh, enormous migration, not just from Venezuela, but some of the biggest waves of migration we've seen in decades from Cuba. And the United States embargo uh, and sanctions against uh, everyday Cuban people have not resulted uh, in the policy outcomes that were sold to governments decades ago. Instead, uh, what it means is that United States farmers in places like Texas that grow rice uh, cannot sell their rice to people in Cuba who are starving. Uh, when And ultimately, many folks in Cuba end up having to buy their food from places like Europe. It makes no sense uh, because we should, again, be making sure our foreign policy is based on feeding people, on, su- on supporting stability, rather than what Juan mentioned, the Monroe Doctrine, or Cold War militarism um, that are based on trying to dominate other countries in the hemisphere. That has not worked. And again, this isn't just based on on charity or humanitarianism. Those things, of course, are core values and very important, but they don't help people in the United States either. Uh, And I think that's a lot of what the conversation has been about, is that many of us uh, were born after the wall fell. Many of us were born in 1989 or afterwards, not just the new electeds in the United States, but also in Latin America. And so this opens up a door for us to say those policies don't make sense. We don't want to relive or restart another Cold War. Instead, what if we do something that's not based on corporate profits or the military industrial complex and more based on lifting up the working people in each of our districts here in the United States and back uh, in their homes in Latin America? And and Congressman, you're joining us from your home state of Texas. I wanted to ask you about the latest news from the border on uh, on Monday. The Texas military department confirmed that a member of the Texas Army National Guard had discharged his weapon over the weekend during a border related incident and had struck a person on the Mexican side uh, of the Bridge of the Americas. Could you talk about the situation along the border now, especially with the all the high profile uh, actions of your governor there, uh, Governor Abbott? Governor Abbott 
uh, continues to pull dangerous stunts that, that have gotten innocent people uh, killed in the river uh, and on the border. I want to be really clear. What he's doing is diverting millions and billions of dollars away from Texas schools, away from health care for pregnant moms here in Texas. He's moving those dollars towards a horrible political stunt on the border. He's making it try to be as broken as possible. Uh, basically for the Fox News cameras, risking the lives of people, violating people's basic rights, all to try to create a crisis rather than set up uh, and support a legal, orderly and safe system for people who are fleeing for their lives and fleeing from disaster. And this latest news is an example of that, where uh, these uh, National Guardsmen are supposed to be providing supposedly some level of logistical support, uh, but instead there are bullets flying, and that is certainly not allowed and shouldn't be a part of this. That's why I think the Department of Justice should be doing an independent investigation of this. We can't have the state of Texas investigating itself so that we know the details, both of this incident, um, but most importantly, about what's going on in general, right? You have these orange buoys being put in the shallow parts of the river so that people have to go and swim in the deepest part where, where people can drown. Uh, we have this horrible barbed wire along the border. It is, they are trying to militarize our border. Uh, that's trying to scare people rather than do what we should be doing, which is uh, having a legal, orderly, and safe system rather than a broken one. But this is another example of right-wing extremists and anti-immigrant politicians lighting the house on fire, being the arsonists, uh, and then going and trying to point the finger um, at those of us who are trying to care for immigrants. So it's the arsonists trying to blame the firefighters for the flames. And we just can't have that. We know in Texas that immigrants um, are a core part of our state, core part of our economy. They're our neighbors. Um, and, and this continued attempt at blaming them is just trying to distract from Governor Abbott's failures on health care, on education uh, and on inequality in the state. Let me ask you quickly, Congressmember Kassar, you were the youngest member of the Austin City Council. You were a labor organizer. Now you've come to Congress. But the Republicans are in charge. And the agenda of the Republicans right now, the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says they're moving on to uh, try to uh, lead an impeachment effort against President Biden. Uh, another um, committee uh, led by the Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan uh, says they are going after Fonnie Willis, uh, the Fulton County DA, uh, who has charged President Trump and 18 others for RICO conspiracy. That's their agenda. As a minority member of Congress, how do you lead issues like these, whether you're talking about immigration, uh, health care, uh, U.S. policy towards Latin America? What difference can you make? That is such an important question, and I'm glad we're linking it back to this trip in Latin America. Uh, there's two things I think we really need to do. One is I think we need to deliver not just a negative message, but also a positive vision for the country, an economic message and a message that shows that there are lawmakers that are different, that actually want to solve these problems. And the way I link it back to this trip in Latin America is that in Chile, there was actually a referendum to overthrow the dictatorship and get rid of Pinochet. Uh, yes, the yes vote meant yes, keep the dictatorship and the no vote was to get rid of the dictatorship. And many people 
who organized around the no vote did not just talk about the horrors of the dictatorship, but about what economic equality could look like, what racial justice could look like, what a fully inclusive uh, democracy could look like. The slogan was, Alegría ya viene, meaning happiness will come. And I think that we face a similar challenge here, where we have to talk about, of course, the militarization of the border, rampant inequality, uh, CEOs ripping everybody off, uh, but also a vision of actually solving the problem. Um, talking about not just a safe uh, and orderly system at the border, but how it is that we can address the root causes of migration. Show people we are serious and that there are lawmakers that want to solve that problem. Rail not just against these uh, you know, needless impeachments and attacks um, on things, on people like the Fulton County DA, but talk about a criminal justice system that can treat people fairly. Talk about how, if we have actually economically progressive policies in this country, we can guarantee everybody health care and negotiate prices, not just down for 10 drugs, but for all drugs. I think we have to have that kind of vision. And even if it can feel a little hopeless right now, and I know that's how it feels for many people in places like Texas, thinking of people in Chile overcoming dictatorship, overcoming odds even greater than these, having a referendum where people were scared that if they were working on getting rid of the dictatorship, that their families could be disappeared, that they themselves could be hurt, but they overcame that, I believe that we can overcome this. And just like uh, this Texas Capitol behind me wasn't used to always be filled with right-wing trolls, it used to uh, have leaders that were the people who actually brought Roe v. Wade as law of the land to this entire country. Texas, uh, right next door to the studio I'm sitting in, used to be the studio and offices of Lyndon Baines Johnson, who signed the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act and undid so much of the segregation and right-wing control of the South. So I think in moments just like this one, people have overcome even steeper obstacles, but we have to have that positive vision. Texas Congressmember Greg Kassar speaking to us from his state capital of Austin. Thanks so much for being with us. Coming up, we go to the Dominican Republic to look at the dire living conditions for Haitian migrant workers on sugar plantations. Back in 30 seconds. Avísenle a la comadre que murió mamá tingo. Y que el pueblo está diciendo que viva mamá tingo. Mama Tingo by Dominican musician Johnny Ventura. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we turn now to look at the Dominican Republic and the plight of sugar plantation workers, including many Haitian migrants who live under dire conditions. Last year, the Biden administration banned sugar imports from one of the major Dominican sugar companies, Central Romana, which sells its products in the United States under the Domino brand. At the time, the U.S. government said it had uncovered, quote, indicators of forced labor. One U.S. official decried the company's practices as, quote, inhumane. Many Haitian migrants work 12 to 14 hours for less than $2 a day while living in communities known as bateyes, some of which do not have running water or electricity. Well, the Puerto Rican environmental group, Casa Pueblo, 
has been attempting to improve living conditions in the Batayas by installing solar panels in some of the communities. Democracy Now! correspondent Juan Carlos Davila recently traveled to the Dominican Republic to talk with local residents living in the communities as the solar panels were being installed. These are some of their voices. Mi nombre es Epifania Sainchal. Soy dominicana de ascendencia haitiana. My name is Epifania St. Charles. I am Dominican of Haitian descent. I am the coordinator of the Reconocido movement here in the region of Cebo. In the past years, these two governments had a labor agreement with the neighboring country of Haiti. The labor accords that they created brought seasonal farm workers and the cane cutters to the Dominican Republic to work as cutters and harvesters of sugar cane. The state realized that the cheap labor of Haitian seasonal workers was beneficial to the Dominican economy. This culminated in the construction of Batayes, towns of sugar plantation workers. These plantations have exploited these cheap labors and forced Haitian seasonal workers into a modern form of slavery. If the sugar plantation cared about the life expectancy and dignity of workers, they would push to improve the workers' quality of life. The workers who live inside Batillas are the raw material of the company. As you can see, people in this Batillas have lived for more than a hundred years without electricity. We're in the 21st century. This has made an already discriminated population even more vulnerable. Casa Pueblo visited to strategize on how to implement solar energy for the Batillas, here in the Dominican Republic, mostly in the east. The panels were also installed in the areas of Batay 50 and Batay Brador. The local government is not interested in improving people's quality of life. They're not interested in helping this population have access to education or to have a better life so the government can keep exploiting them. The company has profited from the cane cutters and seasonal farm workers who have lent their hands, strength and sweat to work the sugar cane fields. Today we're working to change this reality without the help of politicians. We're implementing a sustainable energetic model and establishing a new example of how Bateas should be in the Dominican Republic. My name is Johnny Hene. I am part of the Reconocido movement. My parents are Haitians. They migrated from Haiti. They are sugarcane cutters. They are sent to remote areas of the Dominican Republic to work. Every person here works directly with the Central Romana. They face extremely dangerous working conditions. They pay pensions that they later don't receive. They're forced to work even though they're sick, including people in their 60s and 70s. They have to keep cutting sugarcane because they don't get their pensions, although they have paid for them. They don't have the right to good health care. They don't have access to public health services. Dominicans don't welcome Haitians. They even kick them out of hospitals. Due to the slope of the roof, we had to place the solar panel pointing this way. 
because the sun will shine this way. I couldn't put them in the other direction because the panel will not receive sufficient direct sunlight. My name is Franklin Dinol. I'm from the Iguera community, which belongs to the Santa Lucia district. I'm a social activist and human rights defender. I am part of a Reconocido movement, a movement of Dominicans of Haitian descent. As you can see, the batelles are communities that don't have public services, such as water or electrical services and other important resources. Imagine the significance of saying that, with this project, Bateas are going to finally have access to electricity. People here haven't even had the opportunity to learn how to use a computer. Community members here don't know how to use word processor software. Students don't have access to computers, tablets, or telephones, and cannot access a web browser to find information all of which are essential for the job market or school. We're also solving that problem by bringing solar energy panels. We are sending a strong message to corporations and local officials. Voices from Haitian migrant sugar plantation workers in the Dominican Republic. Special thanks to Democracy Now! correspondent Juan Carlos Davila. These people live in communities lacking electricity, but solar panels are now being installed by the Puerto Rican environmental group Casa Pueblo, uh, House of the People, which is a past winner of the Goldman Prize. We're now joined by Casa Pueblo's executive director, Arturo Masolzeja, who is back from the Dominican Republic, now in San Juan, Puerto Rico. It's great to have you with us, Arturo. Uh, talk more about the conditions they face. The companies they're working for, uh, like uh, Dominican sugar company Central Romana, which sells its products in the United States under the Domino brand, um, and what you did in the Dominican Republic. Well, uh, this is an incredible situation. Uh, it's hard to believe that people are living under these circumstances, especially legal migrants that were brought to, to the Dominican Republic to work on the formal economy. They are uh, producing in a very lucrative corporation sugar for, 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 for the country and for exportation. Yet, these people are working on the forced conditions by design. Uh, when you get paid only $4 or less per ton of sugarcane caught, uh, you're forced to work for longer times. So you're forced to bring your, your family members to help improve uh, your survival income. And, uh, and yet, they, they don't have minimal conditions for, for living standards. No running water, no electricity, and and this is heartbreaking to see this happening. Uh, in addition, they they don't recognize their their legal status, uh, not documents, um, and they cannot migrate. They cannot move forward and 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 improve their their quality of life. What we decided to do was to engage. Charity is not enough. Charity perpetuates reality. We decided to take action in solidarity with the Batelles and with Epifania St. Charles. And, and, and we went there to install two units uh, in two separate Batelles to, to install a freezer for their food, to 
that now they can produce eyes to preserve some of their needs and uh, improve their diet. There's a new uh, cultural center. They have a TV station, a small kind of cinema for, for, for entertainment for the community, lighting. Now they can recharge their equipment and, 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 and improve to show that that reality can be transformed right away, immediately. It's very easy uh, and the right of energy has to be for everyone, especially in the Caribbean in which uh, climate adaptation is extremely important. And Arturo, could you talk somewhat about the role of the the government of the Dominican Republic in terms of uh, protecting migrant workers or not protecting them? Uh, clearly, uh, Central Romana is it's not only a, a major uh, a sugar producer, but it's also the site of one of the most expensive resorts uh, in the Caribbean, where tourists from Europe and the United States come there to a five-star resort. They have the political and the economical power to influence the, the government. And the government, it, it, sometimes they said they're going to be protecting the rights of this population. And yet they have the immigration police uh, abusing and creating a sense of fear within, the, with, within everyone in, in Dominican Republic, especially if you're uh, from Haiti. They are not there basically haunting people in that country, not from Venezuela, not from other places, black people that they think, they believe they don't have documents and they, they, they are thrown in, into Haiti back. Um, so uh, the government is not doing their part. They're not fulfilling their, their responsibility. They're doing the opposite. Uh, yeah, contributing to the, this human violation crisis. The discrimination is it's not just discrimination, one. We're talking about extreme conditions of discrimination to this population, and something needs to be done. We saw the embargo taking place uh, last year from the U.S., from, from sugar being brought from, from Dominican Republic, and it's symbolic. It's not happening. It's not doing anything. The market has been re rearranged. Uh, now the, the Central Romana is taking care of the domestic demand for sugar. And the other corporations are sending sugar to the U.S. like on, on normal days. Uh, it, it is a joke. Not even the, the local government, the U.S. government, uh, they're backing up with their actions what is going on with Central Romana and the discrimination to the Haiti uh, populations and their descent. First, second, third, fourth generations of people that were born, raised, that have been working for 40, 50, 60 years for Central Romana, and yet they don't have the basic living conditions and, and they, they don't get recognized their civil rights uh, to be in, in the Dominican Republic either. And finally, Arturo, if you can uh, just comment, we just have 30 seconds on having this access to sustainable power, not relying on the local government uh, and the privatization of power. Well, I think that the alternatives are out there, uh, but it seems like the government want, and the corporation wants to keep them without power. It's a, it's a mean of control. 
Uh, we are concerned about the security of Epifanias and Charles and, and the people from Preconocidos and also from, from the people from the community that participated actually in, in, in the installation of these solar panels. So we want to hold accountable uh, the government and the corporation for the safety of all of them. We have to change this reality and the alternative are accessible. We want to thank you so much for being with us. Arturo Masol de ja, executive director of Casa Pueblo, House of the People, speaking to us from Puerto Rico, just back from the Dominican Republic. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us.